Good morning, folks. It's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, folks. Welcome to Democratic Perspective. I'm really glad that you've joined us today. We're talking with Sasha Abramsky, and Sasha Abramsky wrote a really great book about poverty in America. And uh, we interviewed him, I think, three times a few years ago, mostly about poverty in America. Uh, Sasha, what was the title of that book, the, particularly the, the undertitle, I guess you'd call it? Oh, yeah. The, the book was called The American Way of Poverty, and the undertitle was called How the Other Half Still Lives. Um, and it was a riff on the Michael Harrington book, How the Other Half Lives. Um, I thought that was a great title, you know, that How the Other Half Still Lives. And so I, well, I guess I wanted to start off by asking you today. We've had about a year of COVID. It had a vast economic impact. What's the impact on, on, on poverty in America? I know that's a broad question, but, but how has COVID and the responses to COVID, how has that impacted poverty, um, that you had discussed so much earlier well, in your work? You know, one of the extraordinary things is it's both impacted poverty in the most profound of ways, but at the same time not impacted the broader economy in quite the way that people thought it would at the beginning of the pandemic. And what I mean by that is if you're working in certain industries, especially industries around service or entertainment or travel, um, hospitality and so on, basically your business has been destroyed. Um, you're, you're working in an environment where there just are no customers. And so for people at the bottom of the economy, people who tended to have low wages to begin with, people who tended to have low benefits to begin with, this pandemic has been absolutely devastating. So you're seeing this rise of um, people unable to pay their um, housing costs. You're seeing this rise of um, violence in cities because there's so much social dislocation. You're seeing a whole bunch of indicators that suggest that the bottom of the economy is suffering in a way that we haven't seen maybe even in the 2008 recession. You probably have to go back to the Great Depression to see an economic dislocation this great at the bottom of the economy. On the other hand, when you look at the macro numbers, the stock market's roaring. It's at 31,500 at the moment. Um, economic growth rates are returning. There are these predictions of a sort of roaring boom at the back end of the pandemic. So at the macro level, things are actually going fairly well. And when you look at the accumulation of wealth, you see this you know, absolutely stark transfer of wealth from consumers to a handful of business leaders, especially um, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, both of whom have gained about $100 billion each during the pandemic. I mean, this is an extraordinary concentration of wealth at the top of an already very, very steep economic pyramid. Um, so I think that's a sort of very long answer to your question. But, you know, it's, it's both very, very bad news for people at the bottom of the economy and very, very good news for people at the top of the economy. Something that you mentioned that I would like to follow up on is the increased crime weight that exists in some crimes, particularly uh, in the in the COVID area. It's increased uh, the crime rate in some of the cities and so forth and so on. How is that connected? Is it connected to the the poverty 
the impact on 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 lower income people, or is it just dislocation? What, what what's your take on it? Well, I think that one of the things that happened at the beginning of the pandemic was this absolutely profound sort of dislocation that people who were one minute working in a sort of booming economy with three percent unemployment. When you fast forward just a couple of months into the spring of 2020, the unemployment rate had gone up by orders of magnitude. So when it peaks in April and May, you're looking at, you know, 15, 20 percent of the workforce out of work. And so on one level, it's just a sheer economic dislocation. But I think it's beyond that. I think there's the psychic dislocation as well, that, you know, the pandemic and the way it's played out and the fact that asymptomatic people could transmit, which meant that there had to be these sort of extremely draconian lockdowns and there had to be these social distancing rules that, you know, really no one alive today would be familiar with. You have to go back to the flu pandemic of 1918 to 1920 to get a similar sort of, you know, massive attempt to separate people out one from another. So you had this profound isolation and you had this lockdown from March through June where large parts of the economy were just completely shuttered and you couldn't do anything. You, you couldn't go out. You couldn't visit people. There were restrictions on travel. That there was a dislocation that was so profound psychically. And I think it did play out, at least in part, with an increase in crime, especially violent crime, that there were just so many tensions and fears and anxieties that were bubbling up to the surface that communities and individuals that were already on the margins were pushed over the edge. And I think, you know, sociologists and criminologists and psychologists will be talking about this for decades to come, that the dislocation was so profound and so unfamiliar that it did lead to, you know, very strange changes in behavior, I think. I think unfamiliar is an important word to use for it. It was it was new and different and no one knew how to handle it. And there were stories about the great... Uh, flu epidemic in the early part of the 20th century. Killed my uh, grandfather, for example, died in the flu epidemic. Young man, very young man. Um, and that, there were stories like that, but that was like distant history. The, just that when I look at people, Sasha, with masks on and stuff, when I see the president of the United States wearing a mask it and, and all the officials, it's, it's a strange thing. It's almost like a science fiction movie. Uh, it, it is. It's very dystopian. And, and, you know, in actual fact, in 1918, you know, people weren't wearing N95 masks. There were no such thing as N95s. But uh-huh. there were mandates for people to put cloth masks over their face. And so you do have images from the pandemic of Americans walking around in a way that would be familiar in some ways to people walking around today, face covered, keeping their distance. Um, you, you had the shuttering of schools in the flu pandemic, and you had some effort to teach outdoors. Um, you had these really, you know, radical transformations of life. You had restrictions on church worship in 1918. You had restrictions on weddings and funerals and sports events and bars, all the things that we're seeing today. So it's not that this has never happened before. It's just never happened in our lifetimes before. And you're, the other thing you said, you sort of talked about it being a, a forgotten history, and that's exactly right, that there's a bunch of imagery about World War One and Two. Um, you know, we memorialize wars in a way we don't tend to memorialize medical disasters. And so even though we should have been familiar with some of this because we lived, you know, the country had been through this once before, 
in actual fact, the imagery is very sparse. There, there really isn't nearly as much imagery of the pandemic um, as one would think there should be. There isn't as much photographic imagery, and there certainly isn't as, as much literary imagery. It wasn't memorialized in great novels or anything like that. And so it did become forgotten. Um, and I think it will be a bit different this time around because the way social media works, you know, everything is preserved. Every emotion is preserved. Every instinct is preserved. Every, um, you know, every public statement is preserved um, in the, you know, ether of cyberspace. I, th I think this time around, there's going to be an abundance of material for historians to mine through when they sort of try and work out you know, how the pandemic played out and how it impacted people's lives. Um, but I do think, you know, coming back to this whole, whole question of crime, you know, what's really interesting is that it's not all kinds of crime that have increased. It's very particular. It's violent crime, and in particular, murders have gone up in a lot of big cities around the country. And, you know, that's obviously a, a really bad thing. There's been a 30-year period where crimes have pretty much gone down year in and year out. And suddenly there's this spike. And, you know, even with the spike of 2020, the number of murders in, let's say, New York or Los Angeles, the two biggest cities in the country... They're a, a, a tiny fraction of what they were in the early 1990s. New York, when I moved there in 1993, had about 2,500 murders a year. And it went down by 90%. And then last year, it bounced back up. And now I think it was about 500 murders in 2020. But that's still a fraction of what it was a generation ago. So it's not that all of the advances in reducing crime rates have been eliminated by the pandemic, but something definitely happened. There, there was enough social dislocation, enough um, chaos that was created that a level of violent crime did fill the vacuum. And, and you know, that's a bad thing. And I profoundly hope it doesn't become the new normal because, you know, there are so many problems in this country already that adding in a spike in violent crime is just something nobody needs at the moment. Yeah, I lived in New York City and Manhattan from um, the late uh, 1970s until 2003. And we are, when we arrived in New York, crime was just getting worse and worse and worse. There were dangerous areas and stuff. And the entire time uh, that I spent in, in, in New York, crime rate was going down. Things were improving. The economy was improving um, from the bottom um uh, during the Beam administration, everything was going up, and uh, and then to see the see this, I guess what is a twenty year continuous drop in crime rate to see it spike up the last couple of years is disturbing. But it's mostly violent crime. It's not you know larceny or or something like that. Well, my understanding, I, I, I used to write an awful lot about the criminal justice system. I write less about crime and punishment issues these days. But I do read the literature every so often still. And my understanding is that in terms of the measured crime increase, it's very specific to violent crime, um, and it's probably very tied into spikes in mental illness, to overworked crisis systems that just aren't able to respond properly in the pandemic. Um, you've had, you know, probably some of it exacerbated by efforts to, you know, lower the numbers of people in jails and prisons during the pandemic. And that's a good thing. You've got, you've got to take out as many people from the prison system as you can during the pandemic because they're breeding grounds for, for, for COVID. Um, but if you do release a lot of prisoners, some of them, unfortunately, will probably recidivate. So I think there are a lot of things going on there. I think, you know, the other thing is mental health systems in particular got utterly overwhelmed during the pandemic both because it was harder to 
deal with existing patients because of all the social distancing protocols, but also because so many people were facing mental health stresses and crises, and there just weren't enough counsellors and psychologists and psychiatrists to properly deal with the need. So I think all of that has come together, and one of the results has been spikes in violent crime. In terms of the sort of lower level crimes, larceny or, you know, shoplifting and so on and so forth, those numbers haven't gone up. Now, again, I'm not sort of following the ins and outs of this. My guess is that at least some of that is probably because people just aren't bothering to report lowing crimes at the moment. They they know that they're happening. Police aren't going to respond because they're overwhelmed. So it, it's possible that lowing crimes are just being somewhat undercounted at the moment. Um, but certainly the thing that's really worrying is the headline number that murder rates are going up. Um, and, you know, the, the, the challenge will be as the economy improves, as society normalizes again, as social interactions become possible again over the coming months and years, hopefully it will turn out that this violent crime increase was a blip. The challenge will be to make sure it doesn't become a new norm again. So let me ask you a broader question. I don't expect to, to be able to answer it, but... Um COVID, the whole impact of it, it, it actually the, the mask and people distancing and all this stuff reminds me of um, early French <laughs> um, uh, silent movies, Fatimos, you know, it's, it's just, just strange. I don't think I even remember the name exactly. But to me, I, and I can't put this in words, but to me the, the COVID has had impact maybe, Sasha, that we don't see in statistics or or economic figures. There's something else has happened to the country, uh, to the psyche of the country by going through this. I mean, we had this huge military to protect us, and it proved absolutely useless to this virus that came in and killed 500,000 Americans now. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's right. And I, I think actually, you know, to be fair, I think the entire world's going through this collective trauma. I, I, America went through it in a particularly brutal way because the federal government under Trump handled it so badly. Um, but certainly that trauma, you know, when you look at shuttered cities around the world and you look at the sort of freezing in place of public life and the fact there's no live entertainment, there's no theater, there's no sports, there's you know limited abilities to hold funerals or weddings. You know, this is a trauma that anyone who has lived through, you, me and everybody else, we're going to be bearing the you know psychic scars of this for probably the rest of our lives. And, you know, the challenge will be to minimize the, the long term damage. Um, you know, schooling being another case in point. Um, here in California, kids in public schools in most cities haven't been in school since March of last year. Um, you know, European countries have done better at getting their kids back to school. But then you go to, you know, I have friends in India, I have friends in the Middle East, and I talk to them. And, you know, many of the kids in those countries have also been out of school for months, if not for an entire year. So I think this is a global trauma. But I do think you're right. It kind of can't be reduced to numbers. So, you know, it doesn't really make sense to quantify it and say, well, the damage is X percent decline in GDP or the damage is X number of you know, people admitted to psychiatric wards. You know, those numbers tell a part of the story. But... You know, the, the other part of the story is just the sheer, unrelenting damage that the idea of a public community, of urban life in particular, has taken during this crisis. Because, you know, I mean, if you think about New York, you know, what makes New York great? It's the hustle and bustle. It's the 24-7 life. It's the, 
you know, crowded office buildings, it's the nightclubs, the jazz music, you know, et cetera, et cetera. None of that's been functioning. You know, you can't go see a baseball game. You, you, you can't go see musicians jamming at a, in a basement club. All these things that used to just be part of the rhythm of life have been fundamentally disrupted. And, you know, we, we, we'll stumble back into them. You know, more and more people will get vaccinated. Eventually, we'll get, we'll get herd immunity. And, you know, over the next few years, these kinds of parts of urban living will return. But it's going to take time. It's going to take a long time to resurrect the kind of lives and the kind of rhythms of life that we used to take for granted. Yeah, I remember the joy of getting on the subway and going to Yankee games. The, cr- the subway crowded with excited people for the game, people wearing colors and and <laughs> having uh, gloves to catch the uh, foul balls and stuff. And it was like a giant party just to get there. And then there was the games itself, the crowd, these huge crowds, the excitement of the, of the field, um, going to Giants Stadium out in New Jersey. I mean... This was life. In New York, it was more like Europe, and it's kind of a cafe society. I can't imagine having been to France and Spain where, you know, going to the cafe with your friends all, you know, in the middle of the night even, bringing along the kids, whatever, was just the way people lived. And that it's got to be a massive shutdown of the things that sort of made many people happy and feel connected to the rest of the city that they were in or the rest of the country. It, I, I just I just think that I fear that we're, it's not going to be over when it's over, Sasha. That's my No, my I, I think it's very true. And, you know, I had a conversation with one of my oldest friends. Um, I'm, I'm from London originally, and so, you know, I have my childhood friends still live in London, and I, I was talking with one of them last month, and he said, well, you know, one of the weird things is London's reverted to a series of villages. Hmm. Um, and, you know, you, you think of this, London's a metropolis of 12 million people, hundreds of square miles, and it's got this, you know, incredibly thriving center, which is large, you know, the city of London, but also, you know, business districts and cultural districts and restaurant districts. It's got these huge areas that by and large have been abandoned for the last year and all the vitality that comes with you know the center of london holding it all together isn't there at the moment because people aren't traveling if they can avoid getting on in london underground they're avoiding it there are you know restrictions in place as to how far you can go from your home for leisure purposes and so people are basically reduced to their not quite their walking environment but not far off they're reduced to you know a few square miles of a territory that used to just be a little bit of a bigger hole. And, you know, that, that is a profound shift. Um, in some ways, that's sort of going back to the pre-modern era. You know, if, if you think of what any great modern city, how it emerged, it emerged over the period of hundreds of years as a series of villages basically outgrew themselves and eventually amalgamated. And they did so sort of by default, you know, with very few exceptions. Most old cities in Europe especially are unplanned. They just sort of emerged over the generations, over hundreds of years or even over thousands of years. And that sort of sense of a bigger whole has been so profoundly disrupted by the, um, you know, year plus of social distancing and a year plus of distance learning and distance working and a year plus of public transit systems being largely abandoned. 
that it is going to take, you know, tremendous psychic energies and emotional investments to recreate those cultures and those communities. Because in a lot of a lot of communities now, when you get out here in the in the West in Northern Arizona, it's not true. But you know, in, when we lived in New York, we loved restaurants, we crowded restaurants, all this energy, all these people, all this great food. You know, it was <laughs> you know it was just like a huge celebration. Um, it wasn't quiet. A lot of the places we liked were noisy, and a lot of the things right. we did were noisy, excited people. Uh, um, you know, you didn't like having them all in the museums when you were kind of looking at a picture, but otherwise it was, it was pretty wonderful. Um, that all just kind of disappeared. There was just like a line, I think, in late March, and it just all stopped. It, it did, and you know, it's funny. I, I I live in Sacramento, but um, you know, I go into San Francisco fairly often, and in the early autumn, the um, museums were open in San Francisco, but they had very limited capacity, so you could go in at about 20% capacity. And so, you know, the spontaneity was gone. You couldn't just suddenly decide, hey, I'm going to a museum. You had to book a ticket in advance and reserve it online, and then you went and you had your allotted time that you could go in. Um, but actually, the museums were really nice because you could see the art, because instead of sort of competing with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of other people, there were just a few people in the museum. And so, you know, there were some great exhibits, and you could see the art. Um, but then when you stepped outside, it was this sort of post-apocalyptic environment where the things that made the city the city weren't there. So you'd have these restaurants, but there was no one in them. And you could go in and order takeout and sit in the park, and there'd be a few other hardy souls sitting in the park eating their takeout. <laughs> but there was no sense of the, you know, again, the hustle and bustle and the intimacy and the noise of the city because everybody is sort of trying to stay away from everybody else. There's this sense of, you know, danger. It's almost sort of transgressive to get too near somebody else um and you know i haven't been down to los angeles since the pandemic began but i'm sure it's even sort of weirder there because you know la is a city of glitz and glamour it's hollywood and yet all of that glitz and glamour revolves around public settings and the public isn't there anymore um and so i do you know again i i you know i write about politics but i also think a lot about cultural transformations and I think that this pandemic and the sort of particular ways it's played out, um, it's going to have tremendous long-term impacts on our understanding, especially of urban culture. I would think so, too. I remember my parents were formed in a lot of ways, and the whole generation that they were in was formed by the Great Depression. So their attitude toward money and savings and 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 economic risk was was formed in the Great Depression, and then that was followed by the unity in the United States of World War II, where everybody came together, uh, and class, a lot of cultural issues just sort of disappeared for a while. Um, and so I, that's the reason I ask you about the the effect of COVID, because I could see the 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 effect of the depression, it wasn't over when it was over. It still marked a lot of the people of, of that generation. Uh, well, that's right. And I think, you know, any any sort of profoundly disruptive series of events does that. Um, so the depression is obviously a case in point. Um, World War II is a case in point. But the other, the other thing, which may be psychologically more relevant, is the rise of nuclear weapons. And, right. you know, you, you think of that psychic shift where suddenly there are these weapons that are so powerful that a single bomb can destroy a city. And the post-World War II generations grew up 
in that world, knowing that sort of in an instant, everything familiar could be destroyed. And I think that had a huge psychic impact. It probably made us think more short term because, you know, what's the point of thinking long term if everything can be destroyed? But it also changed the way Americans in particular lived. It led to the rise of suburban America because people were scared of living in cities that could be targeted and obliterated. And then that led to the rise of the national highway system and a sort of an entire infrastructure that was invested in and built up specifically to counter the threat of nuclear war. And, you know, in some ways, we're seeing that now with the pandemic. There's now going to be a huge new infrastructure around public health surveillance and monitoring. And there's going to be a, you know, massive shift in how we understand data. And there, there are these really profound shifts that are going to be long term and are going to involve huge amounts of investment of government money and of research money. Um, and I do think that, you know, that that first generation or two who lived under the threat of nuclear annihilation, you know, maybe maybe their lessons are actually quite important for a generation growing up in the shadow of pandemic and also the shadow of climate change and the, you know, the potential of devastating ecological crises. I, uh, I was one of the generation raised with the threat of nuclear war. It did sort of haunt us. You know, we did all the things where you put your head down on your desk, you know, and we used to joke, you put your head down on your desk and then you kiss your ass goodbye <laughs> for about nuclear weapon. Um, our neighbors next to us built a uh, bomb shelter, painted it with blue paint, told us if we tried to come into his bomb shelter, he would shoot us. He had a shotgun. Lovely. Yes, but that was multiplied. So what I found in, in life is that one situation is going to be. So if I had one, if one neighbor was telling him he was going to shoot us, there must have been fifty, a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand people telling their neighbors that, that they weren't going to protect them and they would kill them if they tried to come into their to their uh, uh, shelter. Uh, that's got to have kind of impact. And I think you're right. I think we lived under the threat of nuclear war. I think people did always worry about it, and it was not until detente that that, that, that fear really dropped significantly. Uh, and it did, it did haunt people. I think that's interesting that, that it haunted people, but what practically did it do, do you think, Sasha? I mean... What practical well, effect did it have? I, I, I do think that one of the impacts was a sort of move towards short-termism in the culture. Um, because long-term thinking, not just long-term investments, but long-term thinking does involve at least an implicit understanding that you know, we're all going to be around a while, not, not maybe as individuals, but the things we build and care about and the relationships we nurture and so on, that there's a pretty good chance that they will be durable. And the nuclear age shattered that because it created an assumption that there was a pretty good chance that things weren't going to be durable. And the pandemic, in some ways, is very, very similar because, you know, I think we all, you know, maybe not all, but most people in the recent past were under an assumption that we, you know, modern, modern medicine had largely conquered killer diseases, that we were on a sort of permanent half the progress scientifically and the life expectancy would sort of increase and increase and increase sort of almost ad infinitum. And then suddenly we run into this realization that, yes, we have all these bells and whistles and we have all of this high-tech medical equipment, 
But at the end of the day, when a new virus attacks us, at least for a while, we're all naked. Until the vaccines are invented and distributed, we're vulnerable. And that's a huge realization. And, you know, it changes a lot of things. Um, you know, case in point would be the European Union. You know, there was this assumption that the European Union would sort of inevitably be the liberal future of humanity. That the idea of open borders and the idea that you could live and travel and work with you know, minimal state interference, that that was the way of things. You know, two generations of Europeans grew up with that assumption. And then, you know, it began withering a little bit. So you, you had the you know, craziness of Brexit and a major country sort of turning its back on openness. And then in short order, a few years, few years later, you have a pandemic that of necessity shuts down borders in Europe. And I think, again, that's a profound psychic shift because it means that people who thought there was this one direction of progress suddenly run up against a brick wall. And that brick wall is bang in the way of the progress. And so, you know, I think, you know, whether you're talking about America and the half million people who've died in the pandemic or whether you're talking about the European Union and the, you know, desperate challenge it poses to open borders and everything else, you're looking at a world that is being reshaped because of this public health emergency. I must say it was wonderful to travel in Europe and it basically became borderless. Uh, you could hike right from France into Spain. There was nobody checking you when you were, when we were on the Camino de Santiago. Um, and people from all over the, you'd, you'd could be in Ireland and there would be, uh, uh, a wait person from Portugal because, and there would be, uh, um, uh, Polish laborers and it's a little stereotype, but there, uh, the, the fact that people were just blending and moving and working wherever they could, it just seems so positive. And the, the, the one currency seemed positive because we didn't have to fiddle with all these different currencies as I had done when earlier when I visited Europe. Yeah, that, that would break down is, 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 I guess in a sense, what it, what the pandemic revealed was our vulnerabilities that don't have anything to do with military issues, with fights with China or Russia or anybody. It's, it, we have vulnerabilities, and obviously we've got to build up massive, because this is not – I don't – I'll ask you. Is this the last uh, pandemic, the last virus that's going to attack I, I, us? I can't answer that. I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a virologist. I'm not a public health expert. But, you know, I mean, common sense would say no, that we're, we're a species that is mobile and we now have technology that allows us to travel far and fast. And there are many of us because, you know, of medical advances. So we now have 7 billion people, whereas 50 years ago there were 3.5 billion or less than 50 years ago. Um, and that means that we're encroaching more and more on the habitats of other animals and, you know, at some point, diseases jump from one species to the next. So common sense would say no, that this is, you know, there are always new diseases emerging, and we now have the ability to travel, which is wonderful, but the flip side of that is it means those diseases spread very rapidly. The pandemic spread extraordinarily rapidly out of China. It just spread all over the place. It spread before people even had an idea that it had spread. It was... Uh, it was, and it spread in different ways, in different patterns than people expected. 
came very, very hard to uh, treat it, deal with it. Things are on the upbeat. I mean, I have gotten, uh, I've gotten my first uh, COVID shot. I'm waiting Monday. I'll get my second. Um, that's reassuring. Uh, and the, uh, the spike in cases and deaths is going down. Uh, so there's a lot of positive things about COVID. And I think, of course, that it'll be completely resolved in one sense. But I, 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 I sort of agree with you. It's going to deeply affect people's expectations and feelings. And there's been an awful lot of isolation of people from people and just seeing people on Zoom. And it has, an, I think, one of your earlier remarks was about fragmentation of London. It's fragment. It's fragmented all kinds of social groups and peoples and 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 cities from other cities. And it has some positive effects. I mean, we have millions of visitors um, with COVID. People come up to Sedona to hike. Uh, there's been massive infusion of young people who probably would have been going to bars and restaurants and ball games and and uh, and, and and dances and parties and nightclubs uh, that couldn't do anything. So they come to Sedona and hike. So it's. It's filled the country with far too many hikers, but it's filled it with a whole different group. We have all ethnicities coming up from Phoenix, all ages, uh, families, and they're all getting experience of hiking in, in the wilderness. And so it has, it has positive effects. I, I will say that I was always one of these people criticizing people of Sedona for we're trying to, you know, close the door to Sedona after they moved here and, and not wanting tourists, even though tourists are the lifeblood economically of the city. But when there weren't actually any tourists those first few weeks, it was nice. I mean, you know, you could drive around and there was no traffic. And Well, you know, I, I, I think, I mean, what you're saying is actually, you know, it's fascinating. It's that the... the COVID year, this last year from the spring of 20, uh, late winter of 2020 onwards, um, most of it's been psychologically, you know, really traumatizing for the world, but it also has allowed us to slow down a little bit. So, you know, I don't know if you remember, but early in the pandemic when Venice was shuttered in Italy, mm-hmm. and suddenly residents were reporting that for the first time in decades, the waters of the Venice canals were clear because yeah. there was less pollution going in. And there were these um, geomaps of the air over Los Angeles, and suddenly the smog had lifted over Los Angeles. And so, you know, I think that we did slow down, and, you know, and, uh, in a strange way, a lot of the fripperies of life were stripped away, and we sort of realized, here's what's important, here's what's not important. And that's, you know, even though it's been a brutal year, it's not a bad thing for a culture to slow down and say, look, maybe we're doing some of this wrong. Um, you know, I used to get on airplanes every couple of weeks to, you know, go all over the place. And some of those trips were necessary or just a lot of fun. But others of them, you know, I'd travel 3,000 miles to give a four-hour presentation and then I'd come back. And, you know, that kind of stuff probably wasn't necessary and probably wasn't very healthy for us because, you know, it meant, you know, we were such a busy culture that we never slowed down and relaxed and everything else. And I do think that there are lessons, you know, when when we look back on this, and one, one day we will, you know, at some point this pandemic will be tamed. When we look back on it, 
in addition to all the trauma and the horror, I do think that we're going to actually have learned some valuable things about who we are and what we care about. Give me a list, a comprehensive list, Sasha. I'm joking, but but for example, yes, I think slowing down is one thing. I do think that separation makes you more aware of the your your interconnection with people. I mean, that, you literally right. miss people, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, just at the simplest level, I, I doubt very much that any of us are ever going to take people we care about as for granted. You know, we're, we're going to realize what a blessing it is to be able to go to a family dinner with people we care about or to be able to go to a wedding ceremony of you know people we care about. Um, you know, things that we may have done in the past more out of obligation, I think we're going to look at post-pandemic and think, you know what, that's what was important, you know. Um, listening to good music, um, you know, I think there are going to be a whole bunch of things that we no longer sort of, because we realize what happens when they're taken away from us, I think we're no longer going to be nearly as cavalier and sort of taking them for granted. I certainly um, hope that's true. Um the interesting thing is uh, I watch a lot of, I don't wa- uh, listen to television, but I watch a lot of, um, you know, Netflix and Amazon movies. And I've watched so many, Sasha, this last year that I'm now watching uh, Turkish New Wave films. <laughs> and and, and right. you've got to have seen a lot of stuff before you end up watching Turkish New Wave films, which are great, but who knew, you know? I don't think I'd ever look at a, at a Turkish New Wave film um, if it hadn't been for the pandemic. And, and they have some extraordinarily talented directors, but, but you know, I we went through the Swedish films and the German films and the Italian films and the English films, and now we're watching the Turkish films. So the uh, pandemic is filled with all strange, kinds of strange and, and unpredictable things going on. What is the is, – is the, so the, the economy is going to recover, right? And the government is just going to have to spend a lot more money on health care. You can't fool around anymore with these half-assed uh, uh, health care system. Uh, I'm talking about the delivery of the system, not the doctors and the, and the, and the nurses. Uh, we've got to have something that will actually protect us from this kind of thing happening again. Um, we've got to have a strong CDC. Um, I hope people understand the necessity for federal government, and I hope they understand that when they've got in trouble, it's the federal government that's bailed everybody out, right? No, that's that's right. I mean, the the neoliberal project from Reagan onwards of cutting, cutting, and cutting government services to the bone and demonizing government and demonizing any social program as being a handout program, that's gone because – you're absolutely right that without a strong central government, without strong public health infrastructure, we're just setting ourselves up for another set of failures down the road. Um, you know, this pandemic, if and when it's tamed, will be tamed because of public health outreach that gets hard-to-reach populations vaccinated. And, you know, th- there's an absurdity to the idea that you can keep tens of millions of people without health insurance and that it won't somehow affect the rest of us, because of course it will. If you have people who don't have adequate access to medical coverage, 
then when they get sick, they don't go to doctors. You have no way of knowing if infectious diseases are circulating in a community. Um, they don't get vaccinated if and when the vaccine becomes available. And that's a real problem. It's a problem for those communities and those individuals. But more generally, it's a problem for the global community because it sets the seeds in place for future pandemics or future um, outbreaks. And so I, I think you're right that you know, one of the lessons from a public policy perspective that this pandemic has you know, given to all of us is effective, rational, not just good-hearted, but strategic government matters. And that if you don't have that, you know, with all the best will in the world, if you don't have fully functioning government agencies, you're just setting the country up for crisis. I mean, what would people do on unemployment if it hadn't been extended and if it hadn't been supplemented by by the federal government spending? I mean, well, that's absolutely right. You know, without federal government spending on unemployment or on rent of rent protections and all these things that we've sort of created as stopgap measures in the last year, we would have had an even bigger disaster unfolding. And you know, it's actually to the credit of federal agencies that they have, you know, by and large, prevented the creation of a new Great Depression, which at the beginning of the recession, at the beginning of the pandemic, it looked like we were going to be in a Great Depression. I think so, absolutely. I also think that the government did some things right. They they went and bought the vaccine. So people are surprised when they show up to get vaccinated and there's no charge. Well, the government bought a million doses here and a million doses there That's right. and started distributing. They didn't fool around. I think one of the problems with the EU is they tried to negotiate and get the price down and do all this stuff. And the one thing the American government did is it bought the stuff. It bought the well, stuff the, before the, they the existed. The American government, you know, did that. It, it did buy, buy the vaccines early, and that was a good thing. And the other thing is the American government has vast financial resources, not least because it's seen as the um, most secure economy in the world, so people are willing to lend it money at low interest rates. So unlike poorer countries where, you know, when the economy contracted in 2020, they had no ability to respond, this country ended up borrowing trillions of dollars on the assumption it was a needed and necessary investment, and it had no trouble borrowing that money and no trouble distributing it. Yeah, and the interest rates are incredibly low. I, I, I think that's a lesson. We're about to wrap up. We're running out of time, Sasha. Any last thoughts? We've got two minutes. So if you have two minutes to sum up all your thinking. I guess, you know, given the kinds of things that I'm interested in, you know, for me, this is a fascinating moment because, you know, we talked about earlier the fact that a lot of people are getting desperately poor at the same time as a few people are getting extraordinarily wealthy during this pandemic. You know, that creates an incredible political challenge, but also opportunity because there are an awful lot of people out there now who are well aware, A, that government's important, and B, that government has the resources, if it uses them wisely, to ameliorate a large part of these crises. And so there is an opportunity, and it may be the single biggest opportunity since the Great Depression, you know, 90 years ago at this point, nearly 90 years ago, to restructure and reimagine the social compact in this country and to make it more inclusive, um, especially when, you, when you're talking about low-income low immigrant workers, for example. Um, to make the social safety net work better with things like paid family leave or child leave or child allowance benefits. You know, all the things that couldn't have been talked about a decade ago and suddenly are now part of the mainstream political conversation. I guess we're going to have to end it there, Sasha. Uh, We're running out of time. 
we want to thank Democrats of the Red Rocks for their support, the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, uh, lots of other groups and individuals support this, uh, our program. We've been on the air since, uh, 2011. VVID.org, uh, you'll find Sasha's, uh, uh, interview on the podcast and all our other podcasts, uh, that we've done over the years, including some we did with Sasha 10 years ago. <laughs> Thank you very much for being with us, folks, and uh, and I I hope that, uh, that by the time you listen to this, we're doing really much better. Well, it was a pleasure to be on your show again. Well, thank you for coming on, Sasha. It was good to update things with you. All right. Talk to you soon. Yes. Thank you. You've been listening to Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.